Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of For What It's Worth podcast. I think we're up to installment 17. If I'm counting correctly, I was a solid D-minus student in math, so uh, bear with me. By the way, before we start, something critical, something urgent. Uh, For you Americans out there, this is a test. This is only a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is a test. How many films are there in the Smokey and the Bandit series? Now, if you're a real American, I mean a real American, you will know immediately the answer to this question. But I think a lot of you are poser Americans. I don't think you know. And for me, if you don't know how many films are in the Smokey and the Bandit series, I think you should be jailed immediately. And I just wanted to set that tone for the rest of this episode. Um, The correct answer is seven. Believe it or not, seven films in the Smokey and the Bandit series. Now, how do I know that? I know that, not because I've seen all seven, because they're too powerful. I mean, once, the, once you've seen the first one and the second one, your life is forever changed, and you realize you can never see the world through the same filter, and that the idea that there's a three, four, five, six, and seven out there is so overwhelming that you find yourself in the fetal position uh, with your inner child in a shame spiral. And so I have not seen all seven, but I know that there are seven because I have an older brother. And a couple of years ago for Christmas, my older brother gave me the box DVD set of all seven Smokey and the Bandit films. And uh, just to give you an idea of what number seven is like, I don't know the male lead. And the car, I think, technically is a Trans Am, if they were even still making a Trans Am at that time. But the female lead, if I have this correctly, the female lead was Kathy Ireland, the Sports Illustrated swimsuit model. So, I mean, what else do you need to know, right? The Trump impeachment hearings just started. Who cares? There's number seven smoking the bandit out there ready to, uh, ready to go. That's the first point I wanted to make this week. The second point we are starting with is our hero of the week. And uh, this week it's a photographer who I've known for a while, but I don't know him, I don't know him very well. And I only see him like once a year. Uh, his, name, his first name is Christopher, and his last name is M-I-C-H-E-L. And you can look him up. He has a website. And it's a good one. And you can look at the work and, like, see he's, he's gotten around. And uh, the reason he's my hero is that he was somehow able, and there's a really great uh, link to this story through his site, uh, he was able to get a ride in a U-2 spy plane at 70,000 feet above Earth. And uh, the idea that he was able to get this ride is just mind-blowing to me because I, you know, I would, that's just something that just seems beyond capability, possibility, and the fact that they're still flying these things, which is really cool. But anyway, check him out. He's our hero of the week. So as you know, okay, the first point was smoking the bandit. The second point was our hero of the week. The third point is based on my little foray into YouTube here over the past couple of months. And I'm working on another film right now about making mistakes as a photographer and trying not to make the second, uh, the same mistake twice. And then I'm using a project of mine as an example of like what not to do. And so I've been working on this film for a couple of days and amongst the other hundred things that I have on my to-do list. And YouTube is an interesting animal, right? And someone asked me last weekend when I was at a retreat, they were asking me about blogging and about YouTube and, and catering to the audience. And I said, you know, I would never do that. I would ne- never make a film with the YouTube audience in mind because other- if you do that, if you- and blogging is the same. I don't put things on my blog because I think the audience wants to see it. I put things on the blog that I want to write about, that I find interesting. Because otherwise, it's not really you. 
It's basically you are the audience and you're saying, oh, well, I'm going to write about, you know, fluoride elements and the Fuji lenses because I know that the geek fest out there will love this. And then all of a sudden, after a while, I swear to God, the same people talk about burnout. And they go, oh, man, I'm so burned out on making films. You know, I just can't, you know, I can't understand it. You know, I used to love this. And then, and same thing about blogging. You know, blogging started to die off, whatever, a decade ago, because people did the same thing. They were like, oh, wow, people are following me, and I can just shape my content to what the masses want. And then within about five minutes, you're like, okay, this isn't me anymore. I'm dead. The same thing happens when you're a photographer and you're doing assignment work. And the assignments are often, they're paying you enough to, to make a living. And you're like, wow, this is great. I'm making a living as a photographer. But I'm shooting a bunch of pictures that aren't mine. And I'm shooting for clients I don't want to shoot for. And I'm making pictures of things that at the end of the year I look at and I'm like, I have no relationship to that whatsoever. And if you do that long enough, it kills your desire to actually do what you're doing, which is make pictures. And that's a sad thing. Which is one of the reasons why I really loved walking away from photography was that now when I make pictures, I'm only shooting stuff that I want to shoot. But at the essence of all this stuff, what I realized is that people are doing this because they want to matter. And I think that's what social media has, has done is illustrate the fact. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that's a human thing is that people want to matter. They want to feel like who they are and what they're doing and what they stand for is in the conversation in, of humanity. And I get that. I think what we've done with it is taken in a really unhealthy direction. And I think, look at what humans do in general. You know, look at what we're doing to the planet. Look at what we're doing to each other. Look at what the wars and all of the crazy things that we do to, to damage ourselves. I mean, I just read this morning or just saw that there's a couple of cases of pneumonic plague in China. And you think, okay, there's a billion people there. What happens if the pneumonic plague spreads? And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a minefield out there. But I think at the, at the essence of this is something really important, which I think is a good thing, which is we do want to matter. And I think it is important to matter, depending on who you are. And I think every single person has a story inside of them that is relevant to the conversation in humanity. It's deciphering and curating and honing that story for it to have impact. But there has to be a couple of things involved. There has to be truth honesty. Humor is also a nice thing to throw in there as well. But I think the honesty and the truth part, and that's where the online world derails itself, is that it's so clearly not honest and so clearly not truthful. And that's really where, where, where we have to pull back from. So if you're thinking of doing YouTube or you're thinking of doing more social or do, starting a blog or changing your online persona, that is my advice to you, is to be honest and truthful and don't think about the audience. Think about yourself and the contribution that you're making. Okay, so point number four, that was three, we all want to matter. Point number four is about uh, meditation. And I don't meditate. Uh, I have a couple of times in the past, but I've never made it a concerted effort in my life. And But here's the, the sad part, is that I've thought about doing it a million times. And I have friends who meditate on a daily basis. And every single person I know that meditates on a daily basis has told me flat out that it completely and utterly changed their life in a positive way. I have never run into a single human being that said, yeah, I meditate, but it's made no difference. Or, yeah, I meditated for a year, made no difference, and I quit. Every single person. Now, I know, I know plenty of people who meditated for a year and then stopped, and they always say the same thing of like, oh, man, I got to get back to it. You know, it was, so, it was so great. It's really hard. And if you think about meditation and com combining it or trying to interface with modern culture, you realize how difficult that is. Our culture 
is about everything that meditation is not. But there's a couple of things I learned about meditation that I found fascinating, which is what, again, is at some point in time, I will begin to meditate. And I think I've, I've found a relatively healthy structure in my life with, in terms of reading and writing and being creative and exercising and exploring and all that stuff. I think I'm, I've done okay at, at mapping out my life. But the meditation part is the one glaring hole. And I don't think meditation is a selfish endeavor. I think meditation is a collective endeavor because if you are more at home and comfortable with yourself and your brain, you have a higher capability. And that higher capability transcends everything that you are doing. It transcends your athletic endeavors, your your mental endeavors, your work endeavors, everybody that I know that meditates. And, I, and I'll give you an example. I have a friend in South America and he, I didn't know, I've known him for a long time. I, this goes back to my days in LA. And we were never, we never spent a ton of time around each other, but we always, we always were friends. And when we were together, we always had a good time. And a couple of years ago, I went to Uruguay where he lives and, uh, and we did a project together. There were four of us working on the same project. And so two Uruguayans and two Americans. And I'm there, like I'm staying at his house the first day. And we're like in the middle of like talking about the project or doing something. He's like, I'll be right back. And he disappears for like 20 minutes. And then he comes back. And I'm like, okay, whatever. I have no idea what he's doing. But this guy has like an energy about him that's peculiar, right? In a, in a good way. And he's, someone once described me, another photographer that I work with on a project once said to me, you don't take up much space. And they meant that as a compliment, that I could move through certain circles, but I was never an emotional or physical presence. I was able to just sort of like blend in. And I would describe my friend as the same way, but he has a very calming atmosphere around him. And so I'm there on the trip and days go by and he keeps disappearing. And I'm like, what the hell? He's like disappearing for 20 minutes. And so one day he disappears and I'm like, I'm going to go find him. So I'm wandering through the house and I come around the corner and, and, I, and there he is. He's meditating. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm meditating. I said, oh, okay. And I left and want to bother him. But I was like, oh, that explains the energy field, right? That explains. And when you're around him, it's kind of contagious. It's not like you're going to don a saffron robe and, you know, uh, stand on top of a pyramid with a thousand naked people screaming and throwing little pickles at you. By the way, that's a movie reference. And hopefully someone will write in with the reference because it's maybe the greatest single cinematic experience of all time. So if you know what that reference was from, a thousand naked people screaming and throwing little pickles at you, please write in the comments below because everyone should share in the joy of this movie. Anyway, the meditation thing. So I'm studying a little bit about meditation and there's something about it that I find truly fascinating. There's two things, two new developments for me. There is something called a bliss molecule. Believe it or not, your brain is waiting to be told how to change. That's the primary goal of your brain is it's waiting for you to tell it how to change. That's fascinating to me. And secondly, there is a bliss molecule that we can engage with. That sounds freaking amazing. Again, the Trump impeachment hearings just started. There's a lot of anti-bliss action happening out there. So anything that can help. But here's the part that really got me is there's, I think, five or six different kinds of brain waves: alpha, beta, gamma, theta, delta, etc. Now, most of the time, if I have the, and I am, look, I'm no expert on this, so this is probably wrong, but most of the time our brain is bouncing around at the top of the scale, the alpha, the beta, the gamma, right? This is anxiety, stress, blah, blah, blah. And at the very bottom, you have longer brain waves. You have theta and delta. 
And the interesting thing is that when they hook up EEG machines to people who are meditating, they're flipping their brainwaves from alpha, beta, gamma down to theta and delta. Theta and delta are the brainwaves that you're experiencing when you're in deep, deep, deep sleep and also when you're in meditation. Now that to me sounds incredibly powerful. In a world of alpha and gamma, imagine being able to navigate with theta and delta. That's it. That's the tipping point for me was when I read this, I suddenly said, okay, I need to eliminate something else in my life and add this in because this is just too intriguing. And, and to me, it's about the science behind it. That's the part to me that really got me was, you know, meditation, you can go either way. You could say this is total bullshit or there's something to this. But when the science got to the level where they could connect someone to an EEG and watch what was happening to their brainwaves, which they've done many, many times. The point is the science is behind it. The science is there that says this is actually happening, that this is something that's going to work, and it can work for anyone. So for those of you who out there meditate, hook me up, man. Tell me, help me out, reach out, and answer me, what, what is it about it? How, how did you do it? How did you get yourself over the hump of starting it? And what has been the outcome of being a focused meditator? I would really love to know. Okay, so the first point was smoking the bandit. And damn it, if you're not watching one of the seven right now, I want you to sign off of this podcast and never come back. Okay, point two was hero, Christopher Michael or Michelle. I honestly don't know how to pronounce his last name, and that's embarrassing. I should know. I'm going to think it's Michael, but I could be wrong. Number three was the point we want to matter. Number four was about meditation, the bliss molecule, and transferring our brain from beta and alpha waves to theta and delta. And if any of you are out there have done that, give me the cheat sheet, man. Okay, the next point I want to make is, yes, once again, back to equipment, because I've done a number on myself once again. Now, I've been talking about finding a, a different camera for this specific project I'm starting or restarting right now. And I talked about, um, you know, the Leica, I talked about the Fuji 50 megapixel, blah, blah, blah. Uh, one thing I forgot about was the Sony. So I was at an event, and someone I know had a Sony A7R4 and a 51.4 lens, which is the size of a Volkswagen bus. It's big. But I picked this camera up and I was like, holy cow, it was amazing. And the eye tracking with motion in particular was like light years beyond, beyond my Fuji. But it's also a 60 megapixel camera, which is ideal for what I want. And it's tiny. And I was like, oh, God, I totally forgot about Sony. So talk me out of it, please, people. I, you know, at this point, it's been a three or four days. I've, I've talked myself off the ledge. Um, my, my addiction withdrawal symptoms for new camera gear have tapered off. I feel like I've gotten beyond that window. I reached out to someone at Sony that I know, seeing if I could get a deal on a camera or not. And um, I know that they're an event and super busy. They haven't gotten back to me about that. And I think I'm okay with it because I think I'm going to skip the whole thing. Um, but it is a pretty remarkable camera. And the person who had it said to me something very interesting. He said, it's, it's a computer. You know, it feels like I'm using a computer, not a camera. So that way, and that was meant sort of as a, this is an amazing thing, but it's also kind of soulless in a way, which I totally get. And I, I understand what that is. Um, as opposed to using something like my M4, which is just a, a brass brick with a hole in it. You know, I mean, there's a totally different experience between those two cameras. I don't see one as better than the other. I just think it's a very different thing. And at 50 years old, with my eyesight from sitting in front of a computer all day, waning uh, the autofocus, and especially the motion autofocus, <clears throat> the quality of those files, etc. cetera, um, talk me out of a Sony. Now, price-wise, you could very easily talk me out of a Sony because I think the body alone is worth more than my entire Fuji system. Two bodies, two lenses, four lenses, booster, etc. The Sony's expensive, but anyway. Okay, so that was the, the gear point. I just had to get that off my chest. We're going to get beyond this now. Um, 
the whole political scenario that's happening, I always try to touch on politics to get people to think about things per perhaps in a different way. Uh, I try to look at politics with a logical filter, and I've, I've said this many times before, I'm completely and utterly skeptical of both parties. I think our political system is completely broken. And every single day uh, when I try to engage with the political system, it reinforces the idea that it is completely broken. And I think we sit around as a culture and say, shrug and say, well, what, what can we do about it? We could do anything we want. We could completely change the system. Um, you know, don't drive your car for a week and don't pay your taxes and see how quickly things change. That's the kind of like sort of insurrection that needs to happen before anything will actually move the needle. But I want to bring one person up in particular. A couple of years ago here in Santa Fe, I'm at a party and I, I meet a filmmaker. And the filmmaker is doing a documentary about Beta O'Rourke, who's the El Paso uh, Texan, who, uh, you know, is basically making inroads as a Democrat in a long, long, long standing area of Republican control. And so Beto was an interesting character, right? I, I kind of always felt that Beto didn't want to win the presidential race, didn't even want to be in, in that conversation. He just did it. It kind of felt like peer pressure or just testing the water to see what would happen. And the reason why I came to that conclusion was when he made a statement about, I'm coming after your, your AR-15s or your assault rifles. Now, this is something that every single one of the political candidates on both sides of the aisle thinks about. And this is what I think, what every single candidate knows they have to do, right? There's no reason, and again, you know my history with, with firearms. I grew up shooting rifle, pistol, shotgun. I was a competitive shooter. My father was a competitive shooter. My mom and dad taught concealed carry for Texas DPS. So I've been around guns my whole life. I have very, a very inert relationship to them. Um, you know, I, I haven't shot a gun in a long time. I have no desire to have a bunch of guns, none of that. Um, but I look at the AR-15, which I've shot many times. It was never a gun that I looked at and said, wow, this is something I want to have. I didn't really, the only use for that gun, in my opinion, is to shoot another human being. You know, it wasn't a particularly fun gun to shoot. It wasn't a great target gun, whatever. I'm sure it has a military application, and I've never been in the military, so obviously that doesn't apply to me. But when he said, we're coming after it, that to me was his statement of saying, okay, I'm, I'm not going to win this thing. So I'm going to shake, shake things up. And, you know, obviously the, the, the right and NRA just went after him and said, okay, you know, here's evidence that they're going to come and take everything away, which was what they always do. Um, but that to me was an interesting statement. That's the kind of political action and self-sacrifice that needs to happen to make things change. I don't think Americans are ready for change yet. We haven't hit rock bottom quite yet, but we're aiming there very, very quickly. And, and what's transpiring on television today, if that's not enough to indicate the scenario that we're in, I'm not sure what is because it is so disheartening and so embarrassing as an American to see what's happening and the amount of deception and lying and partisan and pettiness. And it's just astounding. It's such a turnoff. Not that I'm not proud to be an American. I do love this country. I think it's a very interesting place, but I am embarrassed by our political system and I am embarrassed by the people that we are, are so-called leaders. I think it's just, we're at the point now where we've really got to reinvent. Okay, moving on. Let's go back to something super positive, like why you all have deleted your Facebook accounts in the last week. Uh, so I have, a t I, have a, I have a test for you. And I just got off the phone with my friend Larry. And Larry I've known for years. Actually, Larry was one of the four people that went to Uruguay. He was one of the people that worked on the project. He's a really good photographer. He's a quiet photographer. He doesn't work full-time as a photographer, but he makes really great work. And he's a super thoughtful guy. So we always talk a lot about social. We talk a lot about you know art and photography, et cetera. And um, he just told me on the phone this morning that he, how many letters he's written in the past month or so, which is great. He's written like 15 letters. And so for those of you who are still on Facebook, I have a challenge for you. 
which is to, to uh, first of all, delete Facebook off your phone. And by the way, there were more stories that came out this week about Facebook and the deception, the lying, the racism within the company, everything. Every day there's some horrible thing about Facebook. But if you still have it, delete it off your phone. That's number one. But number two is go to your, the, the, your interface online and just close that browser tab. And every time you feel the need to go on Facebook, get out a pen and paper, just keep a pen and paper there. It does not have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be stationary. It doesn't have to be perfect. You could use a pencil, a crayon, your own blood, whatever, pig blood. Write a letter. Start with your immediate family. If you haven't written your parents a letter, write your mom, write your dad, if, you, if they're still around. Write your uncle, write your aunt, write someone in your family, your cousin. How about your creepy uncle? You know, how about that guy? He's out there somewhere. We all have one. Um, I've got a couple who are in jail. I've got a couple of cousins in jail. Oddly enough, my cousin who's in and out of jail is one of the most interesting people I've ever met. He is one of the only true adventurists I've ever met in my entire life. And if I gave you a description of what he's done in his life, you would simply not believe me. He's in and out of jail. He's got, got a little drug issue, but I love the guy. Absolutely incredible. And the whole time he's in prison, guess what? We wrote letters back and forth. No internet. No email, no phone calls, just letters. So anytime you feel the urge to go on Facebook, write a letter. I don't care if it's a paragraph or one sentence. Do a haiku. Send your, send your creepy uncle a haiku. That is something you could do. And I'm telling you, man, this goes back to the, the theta and delta brainwaves. You are reprogramming your brain to ingest information in long form, slow form. And let me tell you, from someone who had deleted most of their social six years ago, and I just, re- I just finished my 42nd book of the year, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. Um, reprogramming your brain is, a, is well worth the time and effort, and this is a great way to do it and to eliminate using this idiotic platform that's taken over the world. Okay, I think that was point number five or point number six. We're going to move on. So let me see how I want to frame this. Uh, I think, well, I was going to talk a little bit about, well, I, I, I mentioned this briefly a second ago about, about bringing change. And there was another, uh, something that happened, this has been an ongoing story forever, I'm not paying that much attention to it, but it's about Trump and, and taxes, right? And he's done everything possible to hide, hide his taxes after, you know, saying during the run-up to the election, like, oh, no problem, I'm going to release it as soon as I'm not being audited kind of thing, whatever. So, you know, he obviously doesn't want to do this. No, I think it could go one of two ways. I think either his taxes are going to reveal that he hasn't paid any taxes, which he'll spin into saying, look how smart I am. Or he actually has paid his taxes, and he's just waiting for them to force his hand at the last minute, and then he'll say, look, see, I told you there was nothing there. Either way, it's a, it's a, it's a ploy. He's ob- it's obviously working for him. But my point about the change is our system, our culture and society and our political system is actually a house of cards. It's very, very, very fragile. And I have a friend who worked for the Obama campaign. And he's a young kid. Uh, he's worked for a lot of different campaigns, both sides of the aisle. He's worked in the music industry. He's done all kinds of stuff. Very interesting kid who I really like. He's very smart. And he said to me um, about two years into the Trump, camp- uh, Trump administration, he said, look, uh, in essence, our, our political system was based on the honor system. And it, all it took was someone without honor to come in and bring the whole thing down. And I thought, wow, that's a really interesting scenario. But then you think to yourself, okay, how many people out there are just shrugging their shoulders and saying the whole system's rigged? It doesn't work. I can't, I can't bring change. I'm not going to vote. It doesn't matter. There's two things that we can do to change things immediately. And this will get everyone's attention really fast, right? And it's going to get everybody's attention. And I mentioned it before. Two things you can do. If as a country, we decided to have a car-free week, just imagine what would happen if the American public said, you know what? 
This week, as a protest, we're not driving. And all those hundreds of millions of barrels of oil did not get consumed. Do you realize what would happen with extraction, with socioeconomic political connection between basically the global marketplace? It would send a death shiver around the world. If we even, and what you're doing is you're taking a week to question extraction. That in itself. And the second thing would be to say, let's say that they do force Trump to release his taxes. And, you know, like a lot of people who are super wealthy, they find loopholes and they get tax credits and they end up not paying their fair share. I totally get it. It's been happening forever. It's not just Trump. It's a lot of people. In fact, I know a lot of personal, personally know a lot of people who've been, who've been doing this for decades. <clears throat> Some of the wealthiest people I know pay the least amount of taxes and they don't seem to have any problem with that whatsoever. They just think, look, that's, you know, I didn't make the rules. I'm just exploiting the weaknesses of the system, blah, blah, blah. But imagine if the public said, well, guess what? You didn't pay your taxes. Um, I've been working my ass off and I've been paying my taxes, but you know what? This year, I'm not going to pay. And as a collection, as a country, we, we when April 15th rolls around, people just say, I'm not paying my taxes. What are they going to do? What, what happens when you know 20 million people or 30 or 50 or 100 million people say, I'm not paying my taxes? The system comes down. It stops. And that's how we're going to have to get attention because it's clearly not working, you know, the, the idle protest movements. And again, I can't turn on the TV. I can't watch what's happening. It's absolutely embarrassing. I will read about it after the fact when the long form data is available. But uh, right now it's just a circus. But just think about that. What would happen if that happened? I have no idea, but I think it would get people's attention. And I think change would be right behind it. Okay, moving on, point eight, nine, ten, whatever we're on here. Uh, I made an observation Thankfully, I am not traveling and flying nearly as much as I was in the past. So when I first started working for Blurb was around 2007. I was on their advisory board. And then uh, in 2010, I quit photography and I started working part-time for Blurb. And then within six months, I went full-time because it was really impossible to do this job part-time. And it just wasn't fair to really anyone involved. When you're working with a team of people who are full-time and you're part-time and they need something or ask for something and you're like, well, it's Wednesday and I don't work again until Monday. It doesn't work. So anyway, I went full time and I spent about six years straight on the road. And that was Europe and Australia and Canada and the US and just event, 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 event. And just to give you an example, we would do these things, road shows, uh, blurb road shows. And it would go something like this. Uh, Dan, we need you to fly to Vancouver and you're going to be there for five days and you're going to do five events. So you're going to do one event every day. And then you're going to fly to Calgary for five days, and you're going to do five events there, and then Montreal, and then Toronto, and then you're going to take a late-night flight from Toronto to New York, and then you're going to go and do another three presentations in New York, and then you're going to fly back. So, you know, t whatever. Four, four cities, 20 events, nonstop. And then you'd get to Vancouver, and word would travel, and then, like, an art school would say, hey, can you come and give a presentation here? Or, hey, there's a photo walk. Can you come on a photo walk with us? And it would snowball and spiral. And then at the end of the four weeks, I'd, I'd be a zombie. And what, this brings back a memory. So I did that exact trip. Vancouver, Calgary, Montreal, Toronto. And I somehow, I didn't book my flight from Toronto to New York. But I had to take this flight. And I, I literally gave a three-hour presentation in the morning in Toronto. I hauled ass to the airport in Toronto with the idea of flying to New York and then going straight to Photo Plus Expo to give a presentation there. The same one, another three hours. And so I got to the airport in Toronto, and I couldn't find the gate. 
And I noticed there's like half a dozen other people walking around and they're looking at each other and they got that look like I can't find the gate either. So we're looking at each other and we're like, are you looking for this, you know, gate 666? And we're like, uh, yeah. And so none of us could find it. And it turns out that we are in some like, you know, fringe area of the airport. And oh, by the way, the plane that we're flying on is a prop plane that seats about six people. And it looks like it's about 150 years old. It's like Orville Wright is the, is the captain and we're about to fly to New York. And oh, by the way, the weather's really bad. So after a four, all these four cities in Canada, three hours of, of uh, Prezo in the morning, I'm fried. I get to the airport. I get on this nightmare plane. And I've been on a lot of small planes. I've been up in bush planes up in Canada and Alaska. So not a big deal. But man, we take off and the weather is bad. And at one point in the flight, I get up with my mobile phone. And everyone is strapped down and screaming on the plane because it's so bad. And I'm like, we're all going to die. And so someone has to photograph this. So I unhook my seatbelt. And I am literally latched onto seats and people, and I make my way to the front of the fuselage with my back against the, the door where the pilots are, the cockpit. And I turn around and I make a picture of the rest of the passengers. And they are terrified. I mean, there's a guy who's like a hipster in the first seat looking at me, and you can tell that it's unspoken, but you know he's thinking, that's a good move, man, because we're all going to die, and someone's going to find that phone and know how terrified we were. But anyway... That's the kind of flying and travel that I did for many, many, many years. But after about six years straight, I was literally at the breaking point, and it's really tapered off since then. And so I rarely get out and fly anymore, which I'm very happy about. I love being here in New Mexico. There's an endless amount of stuff to do here. But I, was, I flew to San Francisco last week, and I'm in, the, I'm in the, uh, the waiting area at the gate, and I'm watching the people around me. And I made an observation that I think is very interesting, which is all of the old people were reading, and they're reading mostly paper books. There were some Kindles. Um, and there were also some older folks doing crossword puzzles. And then I looked at the people basically 35 and under. And it's Facebook and Instagram. And I walk around and I look down over their shoulder at what they're looking at. Just long enough to see what they're on. 100% Facebook and Instagram, Facebook and Instagram. And in the back of my head, I'm like, hmm, gee, I wonder why we're in the predicament we are. There was not a single person under 35 reading anything. It was everybody just consuming vast amounts of bullshit on their device. And I'm looking at these, these old people, uh, who I hold a great affection for, by the way, because I'm getting close to that myself. And they're reading paper books and Kindles and doing crossword puzzles. And they're like challenging themselves. And I'm thinking, holy shit, if that doesn't represent what's happening in our country right now, I don't know what does. So we got to change that. How? No idea. Good luck. You can figure that out. All right, moving on, the next, uh, the next point, what do we want to get here? Oh, I think this is really important. Um, again, I did not see this. I read about it. Uh, so apparently, uh, Don Jr. has written a book, and uh, you know, I'm sure it's a, it's, a, it's a classic. It'll go down in history as one of, the, one of the classics. But anyway, it doesn't matter. He wrote this book, and then he gave a talk somewhere, and he kind of got booed off the stage. But he got booed off the stage by, by basically constituents. And I think that this is a really interesting scenario, and this ties into a lot of the things that I've been reading about lately, which are um, you know, this, this whole idea of white nationalism and this movement that's being really you know, sparked in America. It's not like it hasn't been here for a long time. A lot of people don't know that Americans had an American Nazi party before the Germans did. And Hitler actually looked at what American Nazis were doing and saying, hey, look what the American Nazis are doing to the African-Americans. That's the model that we need to deploy here, which is what led to the Nazi movement in Germany, in part what led to it. So it's not like we haven't had these movements for a long time, but they really went underground for a long, long time. 
And then old Donnie came along and, you know, starting at Charlottesville and saying, hey, there's good people on both sides. And that kind of like emboldened a lot of people. And if you read white nationalism literature, um, it's not, he, he did. They basically looked at, at Donnie and said, hey, you know, he's got our back. Although he, was, he does and he did and still does a lot of things that white nationalist people apparently don't like, which is like fighting foreign wars and things like that. But anyway, what happened to Junior is very interesting to me because once the spark goes, it's like a brush fire. You, a brush fire is a really hard thing to put out. Just ask California. Um, I was almost killed in a brush fire once trying to photograph it uh, when the wind changed in a field. And uh, I was walking up behind a line of firefighters and the wind changed and they turned around and I saw the look of his face through his, through his helmet and he said, run. And we sprinted and barely made it out of this field. And the flames were probably 40 feet high with 10 foot sections snapping off and flying over a four lane highway. Yeah, once I changed my underwear and I got my truck and got out of there, I was like, okay, I don't think I'm a fire photographer. But anyway, so Junior gets up, gives a talk, and he gets booed off by these people who are like white nationalist folks. And the problem that, the, that Donnie and Don Jr. and everybody has is once you get that spark going, it's almost impossible to go back. Because when you fabricate a narrative to live your life on that's not necessarily based on truth or fact or science or math or whatever. It's a fabrication. It's almost impossible to turn these people back around. And he got his first taste of that a couple of days ago. And that's kind of scary, not just for Junior, because it doesn't matter. You know, he's going to go back in the bubble. And it's, again, there's a lot of people living in the bubble. It's not just the right. There's a lot of people on the left living in the bubble as well. And they're in the bubble, and there's nothing's going to get to them. They're, like, untouchable. But that crowd of people is going to turn, and it's really hard to get them back. And that's just a warning sign for the rest of us to like, wow, we gotta, we got to mind our P's and Q's. Okay, the second to last point I'm going to make is about photography. And it is about uh, a film that I'm working on right now, which is about making mistakes, trying not to make the same mistake twice, and using multiple kinds of formats to do one story. And what I mean by that is, like, imagine shooting 35-millimeter black and white and 6.6 color and Polaroid and mobile phone and mixing all these things together, and then trying to make sense of it when you're done. And it's a terrible way of, of doing a photo project. That's my opinion. I've seen people kind of successfully do it, but then at the, ultimately when you look at it, and the problem is it's a way of tricking yourself into thinking you're making progress because certain formats are so alluring on their own. It doesn't really matter what the content is because you look at it and the, the, the technicality of the image is so beautiful that you convince yourself you're making good stuff. So the color Hasselblad square is a perfect example of that in my mind. So to do a project well, my, my opinion is that you choose one format and you do nothing but that format because then you have a cohesive body of work at the end. Instead of saying using two or three formats where at the end you've got completely disparate groups of work that you're then trying to sandwich together into a project. And you can divide them up and say, oh, I'm going to use the color over here, and I'm going to use the black and white over here. It doesn't, it never works. What it does is it, you're going to end up with a project, but it's not going to be nearly as good as if you just chose a single format. And I'm going to make a film that sort of highlights the New Mexico project, which I started, I don't know, 10 years ago, worked on for four or five years, and then put it in the drawer until recently I want to restart it. Um, and I did. I shot 35 black and white. I shot color 6.6. Six, six, I shot black and white 6.6. Six, six, I shot Polaroid. I shot mobile phone. I have all this stuff, and it's a total mess. It's not that there aren't good images from every single technique. There are. There are standalone images from each technique. But as a collective, it's a mess. It's a riddle that no one wants to try to solve. And when you think about the public and you think about the audience for your work, people are so pressed for time. The modern attention span is 12 seconds for millennials, I think, is a 12 second or eight seconds. It's absolutely astounding. 
do you think there is a chance in hell that the pul general public is going to be able to decipher the riddle that you put in front of them when you're using multiple formats? No. The short answer and the equivocal, unequivocal answer is no. They are not able to consume. They do not care. The only thing that you have is the chance to make a cohesive project. Now, and my evidence to this is Instagram. Why does everything on Instagram look exactly the same? Because you can flip, 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 and your brain sees that content on Instagram, and your brain's drop-down menu has already has a channel for it. And you go, oh, yeah, that's content. I've seen that 10 million times. It's like eating peanut M&Ms. You're like, oh, my God, I love the way this tastes. I know it's terrible for me. And that's what Instagram is. That's what Facebook is. That's what Twitter is. And real, solid, long-lasting historical photography does not work that way, nor is it consumed that way. So my advice to you is do not mix formats. Just choose one. And I'm again, I'm making this film. It should be out sometime later this week. And it'll go on uh, Mark Silver's Advancing Your Photography channel. Hopefully, if I can get it done, I've got to make a film for somebody else. And I've got blurb films to do and all kinds of crap. And I don't have enough time. Anyway, my last point of the year is this. This just happened to me again. What did I say? My last point of the year? No, that's not true. My last point of this particular episode 17 is uh, about reading. And when I deleted social media six years ago, seven years ago, something like that, I started with Instagram, then I went to Facebook, then I went to Pinterest, and then I almost did Twitter and then Blurb said at the time, this was again seven years ago, do us a favor, can you keep Twitter? It helps us. I said, fine. I'm not trying to be a jerk. This is just something on a personal level. I just don't think that this is a good fit for me, social media in general. I don't want to live my life that way. I feel like a phony, blah, blah, blah. You've heard the story a million times. But I also made a secondary decision at the same time that did not get as much publicity. And when I say publicity, I got hate mail, people. When I posted about why I deleted social media, I got hate mail for five years. I got, I mean, nasty stuff from people writing me, telling me I'm an idiot or I'm too stupid to understand it or, you know, it just went on and on and on. I'm sure you can Google my name and, and deleting social media and you'll see some of the hate stuff that happened. But anyway, I could care less about that. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, I just thought it was funny more than anything else. But the secondary decision I made at the time was don't go on social media, but also read, right? So instead of going on social, it's exactly what I told you a minute ago. When you, instead of going on Facebook, write a letter. I said, every time I feel like I'm gonna, I need to go online or go on social, I'm going to read. And I cut my online time by about 90% because I realized most of what I was doing online is a complete waste, except for smoking the bandit shit. All that's essential. I would watch episode... Smoking the Bandit 1, 2, and 3 over and over and over again. I mean, basically, it's what I've patterned my life around. But anyway, I decided I'm going to read. And so the first, the first year of doing this, I read about 80 books, 8-0. And I was like, wow, that seems like a lot of books. And then the second year, I was roughly around the same book count, right? And I'm not reading to have a high book count. I'm just reading because I like to read, and I think it's an interesting thing. And again, uh, I think it helps my head. At the end of the second year, I was at a party. And I don't like parties anymore. I'm not a social person. I don't like small talk. Um, I'm just not good at being social anymore. Because for the blurb job, I had to fabricate an identity for myself to be able to do the job because it is a very social job. It involves a lot of public speaking. I'm at events where I'm, you know, people are watching me. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing lectures. We're talking afterwards. And so I had to fabricate this version of myself to be able to do the job. And I do. So people come up to me after talks and they go, wow, that was such a great talk. You're such a great speaker. And I'm like, that wasn't really me. That was the version of myself. That's the blurb me. 
the real me is a hermit. And so the whole book thing, I started to read, I go to this party, and I'm realizing at the party, I suddenly felt like the smartest guy in the room. Now, I'm not saying I was the smartest guy in the room. I just felt like the smartest guy in the room because everyone around me was like a bunny rabbit on crack cocaine. Every, situ- every conversation was small talk. Every conversation was one person interrupting the other with sound bites. Every conversation was, hey, did you see that thing on Facebook? Or, hey, did you know so-and-so on Instagram? And I was like, get me the hell out of here. I felt like the calm in the middle of the storm. I was the doldrums. If you know what the doldrums are, if you're a sailor, I was the doldrums in the party in more ways than one because I felt super calm. I felt like my brain was, was putting up the, the fort walls against all this like nonsensical, idiotic, short-term conversation. But I also felt like the, the calm that I had was directly linked to being able to read. And so I've kept a list of all the books that I read, most of which I post on my site, um, but some I don't. And uh, I, just, I think I just finished my 42nd book of the year, and I'm almost done with 43. The book I'm reading right now is awesome and just effortless to read, and I think you guys will love it. Uh, But here's what happens all the time, and this just happened to me again, and I just kind of shake my head and go, okay, well, people, you can convince yourself of anything, is I get the comments from people, oh, I don't have time to read. Uh, Oh, you you must have it made. Like, your life just must be amazing because I don't have time to read. I can't read it. You know, I don't remember the last time I read a book. Oh, I'm just too busy. I'm too busy. And you know what? I'm going to call 100% unequivocal bullshit on all of those people. And I'll tell you why. Because most of the time when someone tells me this, and I know them well enough to be sort of forthright, I say, really, what time do you get up in the morning? And here's where the facade begins to crack. They don't answer. They answer with an excuse oh, I would get up at such and such a time, but I can't because of so-and-so. And And I'm like, okay, strike one. Uh, Number two, are you on social media? Well, of course, I quote, I have to be for my business. Okay, bullshit on that too. That's strike two. And three, do you surf the web? How, How often are you online? And the answer is all the time. They spend their lives completely online. So here's the thing. If you get up early and you delete your social media and you don't go online unless you absolutely have to, guess what? I just solved the riddle for you. That's it. It's all you need right there. Done. 100% guarantee you will have all the time in the world you need to read. Now, the exception to this rule is kids, children, or a sick parent, or something along those lines where you are strapped. You are, you know, paycheck to paycheck potentially, or you've got a family issue, or you have three kids or four kids or five kids, and you're completely and utterly dedicated to them. There are reasons. There are plenty of people out there that have legitimate reasons to say, look, I just do not have the bandwidth. I totally get that. But my, the people that I'm talking about who are in the photography circles, the art circles, the tech circles, there are people that are sort of navigating in and out of the worlds that I find myself in. 99.9% of them say they can't read or they don't read because they've convinced themselves otherwise and they're addicted to these other platforms. And frankly, addiction is not a word I'm throwing around lightly. It is absolutely 100% legit. We know this now. Again, the science is behind the fact that these platforms were developed with addiction in mind, and they are damn good at designing things to be addictive. And we know that now. So it's hard. You have to break the cycle. And once you break the cycle, I always tell people, you will detox physically and mentally detox for two weeks at least, 
of your brain defaulting back to these spaces of online, of Facebook, of t Instagram, of Twitter. Two weeks into that window, if you survive without going back, you will come out the tunnel. And when you come out the tunnel and look back, you will be absolutely amazed and horrified at the life you were living that was tied to these things, which is going online and going on social. Once that's once those things are out of your mind in a way, the idea of a long form paper, preferably a paper book, just becomes like a welcome mat. You suddenly go, wow, this is pretty amazing. And it takes a while for your brain to flip around. The same thing happens when you try to meditate, right? And you sit down and they call it puppy brain. Yoga is the same way. A lot of times people get into yoga and they go, I can't do yoga because I get bored. And I'm like, that's because you're, you think yoga is a physical exercise, which it is. But the physical exercise of yoga was a byproduct of training your brain. That's why yoga was invented, was to, was to find the clarity inside the brain. And the physical part was a, was a trigger to get you into that part. And so a lot of people are like, oh, I could do yoga, but I'm not flexible. And, and you know, it's boring to me. Uh, these are the same people that are on social and, and Instagram and, and, uh, and online all the time. It's really hard. And so you have to break that cycle. And when you do and your brain flips back Remember, your brain's waiting to be told what to do. When it flips back into that long-form thing, uh, it's a magical experience. And all of these things are, are combined, I think. And it, maybe it sounds a little foo-foo, but the meditation thing and the yoga thing and deleting your online, most of your online presence and then engaging in long-form content, I think it, it, all I can tell you is from personal experience, it is the single most important thing I've done in the last decade was to do that. And I'm not exaggerating other than maybe breathing. I think breathing, I'm not a biologist, but I think breathing is essential. And I kind of feel like doing what I did, I know it was, it was essential for me too, because I found myself going down a road that felt so wrong and I could feel the changes happening both physically and mentally and thinking, holy cow, this cannot be good. And I also think the fact, and here's the, here's the last point I'm gonna make. The reason I was able to do this was I didn't have a choice because I got Lyme disease. And the cognitive issues I was having with Lyme were so profound that social was like the worst possible thing that I could do because my brain was so destroyed with the Lyme bacteria that it was hard to focus, to concentrate. You know, it, I was a mess. And so that's why I got up on my birthday and I said, I can't do this anymore. And I deleted all these things. If I didn't have Lyme disease, I don't know, maybe I'd still be in the addiction circle and maybe I'd still be, I don't know, maybe I would be an Instagram darling right now. And, and my podcast would be like, if you're not on Instagram, you're a loser kind of thing. I don't know. But uh, I kind of feel like Lyme was one of the best things that ever happened to me in some weird, twisted way. But anyway, that is the presentation for this week. That is the podcast for this week. I don't know how many points that, were, that was. It doesn't matter. Uh, and if you're still here at 45 minutes, I don't know. I'm going to send you a bouquet of flowers just because. And anyway, I appreciate you tuning in. And if... Uh, if there's anything that you think is urgently important to discuss, just reach out in the comments and say, hey, dumbass, why don't you talk about such and such? Or if you find uh, or take offense with something I said and you have a completely polar opposite point of view, that is entirely fine as well. That is what discussion is about. We don't all have to agree on everything. So anyway, I hope you, you are all well and uh, focused and creative, and I will talk to you next week.